I'm Sean Graham, and what's old as news this week is John Turner and his government from 1984. Yes, the 17th Prime Minister in Canadian history is the second shortest tenured Prime Minister, but only focusing on his short time at 24 Sussex Drive would be a great mistake as he was one of the more influential figures in Canadian politics in the second half of the 20th century. Rising to prominence as an escort for Princess Margaret on her 1959 Canadian tour, John Turner would go on to serve in the cabinet of Lester Pearson and Pierre Trudeau in positions ranging from Attorney General, Minister of Justice, and perhaps most famously as Finance Minister. Following Pierre Trudeau's announcement that he was going to retire in 1984, John Turner ran for and won the Liberal Party leadership and holding that position until Jean Chrétien took over in the 1990s. But when you look at John Turner's career in its entirety, he dealt with a lot of the same issues that we think about today. As finance minister, he attempted to combat high inflation rates in the face of a slowing economy, leading ultimately to stagflation. As Minister of Justice, he was part of the movement towards the legalization of abortion in this country. He was part of the group that put forth the bill that some have suggested led to the decriminalization of homosexuality. These issues, perhaps once thought to be settled in Canada, are increasingly being brought up within political discussions. And then perhaps most prominently, John Turner took over from Pierre Trudeau following a lengthy time as prime minister. And his call to the liberal leadership, his role in steering the party through the end of the Trudeau era into the Jean Chrétien era, the way he managed the two elections for which he was the leader in 1984 and 1988 and his journey in that position could potentially provide a roadmap or, depending on who you talk to, some warnings for whoever it is that decides to take up that position once Justin Trudeau is no longer the Liberal Party leader. So when we think of John Turner and his career in its entirety, it goes well beyond his time as Prime Minister and the way in which he was called to serve his dedication to democracy, the institutions, in particular the House of Commons, he was somebody who was dedicated to the idea that the country's principal issues, the questions facing Canadians, needed to be discussed, debated, and ultimately decided in the House of Commons was incredibly strong. And at a time when there are questions about the stability of certain political institutions and social, cultural, political policies. John Turner, in his career across various government departments and ultimately as prime minister and leader of the opposition, provides just one example of the influence political leaders can have even if they are not fully in the seat of power. To explore these ideas further, I was joined by Steve Pakin, a longtime journalist in Canada. For those of you in Ontario, you might know Steve as the host of The Agenda, now in its 17th season on TVO, a popular program that, I'm pleased to say, discusses history 
uh, including some roundtable discussions recently that uh, have been very good. So I was very excited to talk with Steve, who's written a new book about John Turner entitled John Turner, an intimate biography of Canada's 17th prime minister. So with that, let's get right into that discussion. All right. And Steve Pakin joins me now. Steve, how are you? I'm just great, Sean. Thanks for the invitation to be with you. I'm really uh, pleased that you are here. Uh, maybe a little different uh, vibe for you being on the other side, getting the questions asked of you, potentially a little uh, different from your normal uh, life. That is different. And I don't like it already. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's a different vibe for you. So let, let's start with uh, this book again, John Turner, An Intimate Biography of Canada's 17th Prime Minister. And uh, it's interesting, Steve, in the historian world, uh, there's been a lot of talk about the value of biographies, particular bi uh, political biographies, uh, because there's not a lot of political biographies of Canadian prime ministers. So what was the motivation for you when you started this project to want to write the Turner biography? Well, you say there aren't very many biographies, and that's true. And it's particularly the case, I think, of of a guy like John Turner, who was prime minister, after all, for a very short period of time. Yeah. He is the second shortest tenure of any prime minister in Canadian history. Sean, I actually didn't, I had no plans to write this book. I, I thought I did a book on former Ontario Premier Bill Davis about five years ago, and I figured that's it. That was 600 pages, took a lot out of me. I didn't think I was going to write another book after that one. But Mr. Turner died two years ago, and within about a month, a couple of his former colleagues approached me and said, you knew him, and I did. We had uh, birthdays two days apart, and we used to go out for lunch on our birthdays uh, every year. I actually was a reporter at his 1984 Liberal Leadership Convention, uh, in which he defeated Mr. Jean Chrétien on the second ballot. Uh, I had followed his career over the years. Uh, we had become I wouldn't say friends, but friendly, certainly enough that I got invited to his birthday parties over the years. And, and they suggested to me that, that I could, because of the relationship I had with him, write a different kind of biography that was, than what was already on the market. Uh, and that I could bring my own sort of knowledge of him to bear, in addition to being able to interview his wife and kids, who had not given interviews to previous biographers, and I could get access to his uh, private archives, the, the papers he had in Ottawa, mm. which previous uh, journalists uh, or historians may not have had access to. So I thought about all that. And um, at the end of the day, I just thought, sure, let's give that a go. And the result of which is that book that you, I presume, <laughs> have and or read at some point. Yeah, it is interesting to, to go through it. Uh, but I am curious too, and this is something that I think a lot of people wonder about the relationship between politicians and those who cover them, uh, because it does have to be cordial to a certain extent. But at the same time, journalists do maintain that critical eye and, and a critical voice in, in asking the tough questions. So how do you navigate that in a situation here where the principal figure under study, as you're going through the project, is no longer there to answer the questions? They, they have the papers, they have family. Like, Does that change your approach at all? Well, I guess I should say that when he was in public life, and I'm not talking about his first go around, he first got elected in 1962, I think. Mm -hmm. So I was two at that time and uh, not yet doing interviews with anybody. Uh, he retired from public life, at least people thought permanently in 1975. Again, at that point, I'm 15. So I had no recollection of his first go around in public life. He went to the private sector for a decade and then came back in 84. And from 84 to 93, 
which was his second go round. That's when I knew him. That's when I got to know him. And at that point, we had a very professional relationship. Uh, it wasn't until after he was out of public life that I started to sort of have a more social relationship with him, the birthday parties and so on, which became very famous over the years, uh, culminating with his 90th birthday in Ottawa, uh, which was a real, uh, boy, that was a real extravaganza, really wonderful, wonderful event. There haven't been that many prime ministers of Canada who've made it to 90, so it was pretty uh, exciting to be there for that. Uh, and it was only sort of in the last decade, decade and a half of his life that we really became closer when he became a real champion of democracy, he cared a lot less, I think, at that stage of the game about who was up and who was down and who was winning and who was losing. Although, don't get me wrong, he certainly was a liberal partisan at that point, as he always was. But he cared first and foremost about the nature of Canadian democracy. And he wanted people, he always used to say, democracy doesn't happen by accident. You've got to participate. You've got to want to get in there. And that's when I really sort of cottoned on to his message and, and, and watched a guy who well into his 80s was still going to high schools three and four times a month to give speeches to kids to tell them about the importance of democracy. So, and I, you know, I, I had to admire that commitment in the man. Yeah. And, and it's one of those things that you, you do get a sense of through the book that his commitment to obviously, yes, his partisan beliefs, but also sort of the core principles of democracy and, and what it means to be Canadian uh, certainly come through very clearly in the book. Uh, but again, at the same time, you do have to navigate that you are writing about somebody who was a, a political figure who made decisions that at times, whether in cabinet or in the limited time that he was the, the prime minister, that certain people would have disagreed with. And there was uh, discussions at, at, at the time. But then you do have a, a personal relationship with them. Uh, so do you do you feel that at all in the book, any sort of tension of or, or questioning like, not necessarily wanting to be positive about him and his life and his experience, but just uh, wondering, even thinking like, what would he think of this? Um, not at all. I, uh, maybe I, <laughs> I don't know, maybe I should have, but, but no, I think everybody understands that if these books are going to have any value at all, they can't be hagiography. You can't yeah. be saying, well, because he and I were sort of friendly, I'm therefore going to overlook all of his foibles and shortcomings and just tell the positive side of the story. Uh, then you, you haven't really done a you haven't done anything useful if that's what you're going to yeah. do. And, and you know, to be sure, while he's no longer here, his wife is very much alive. Three of his four children are still alive. One tragically uh, died uh, far too young. Um, and, and they will see what I have written and they will know if it's honest. And, and, and to that end, I didn't want to be, you know, there've been a few books in the past on John Turner and many of them have been you know, extremely critical because they were written in the time when he was really having his his biggest troubles and they were probably appropriately so. I think with the advantage of the extra hindsight that I now have, you know, I, I wrote this book over the last two years. He'd gone to the big parliament in the sky by the time I started working on this book. So I had the advantage of, I guess, a little more perspective uh, with which to bring to the to the dance. And I hope I captured both his shortcomings and the things that he deserves praise over uh, in this book. So let's start with what really brings him first to public awareness. And this is something that I did not know, uh, is this 1959 royal tour with Princess Margaret, uh, where he's he's part of this a tour. And one of the things that comes through in the book is that he kind of captures some public imagination. There's this curiosity about him during this tour. And, and what really caused that? And why do you think that that was such a, a key moment in bringing him into public life? 
Well, I got to set this up a little bit. His, his stepfather, he lost his father when he was two years old, so he has no memory of his father. But his mother remarried later in life, and her, her husband, his stepfather, John Turner's stepfather, became Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia. So there was a royal visit. And as you point out, Princess Margaret came, and the idea was uh, my handsome, around the same age stepson is going to sort of chaperone Princess Margaret through her British Columbia tour. And there was one night in particular where all tongues were wagging because the two of them had this dance and they looked like just a fabulous couple together and it made all the papers. Now you got to appreciate that at this point, John Turner is a bit of a rising star. He's kind of a, um, he's kind of an up and coming lawyer in the province of Quebec. He's fluently bilingual. He's a Rhodes Scholar, a former Olympic athlete, you know, he was the fastest man in the country at one point and, and sort of destined to get into politics at some point. He eventually would become elected in 1962 and uh, serve, as I indicated earlier, on two stints. So all eyes were on him, I think, even before the princess made her visit. But after that, oh my goodness, <laughs> I mean, it was game, <laughs> set, and match. And people were really watching him very carefully to see what he would do with his future. And his mother used to have this funny line, you know, he was a very staunch Catholic, uh, but he also felt the lure of public life. And his mother, uh, I think, once had the line, you know, if he can't be prime minister, well, then maybe he can be the pope. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great line. Uh, so he, he does uh, enter politics. He's elected in 1962. As you say, he joins with uh, or he gets appointed to the cabinet uh, under Lester Pearson. And it's interesting to think of his career path because uh, you mentioned a rising star and then a cabinet position. And I mean, you might know this a little better than some of the rest of us in terms of what is the discussion around people like John Turner at that point? These rising stars, they get appointed to cabinet. Is it sort of behind the scenes, the discussions that are made like, okay, this guy is going to be the leader at some point, or is it kind of this infighting of everyone's jockeying for position? And how did John Turner himself deal with those expectations? Well, it's both. And and I think the best person to quote to indicate how much of a rising star John Turner was at the time, I guess he was probably 33 when he got elected. Uh, but remember, uh, he got elected a year after John F. Kennedy became president. Uh, Kennedy was the second youngest president of all time. So this was, you know, this is the dawn of the 1960s. There's a sense that the new next younger generation has to be served. And therefore, it was a time when uh, you didn't have to be sort of in your middle 60s, an old, uh, you know, an old white man in order to be able to play in politics. There were others who were having, who were bursting down the doors because they wanted them open as well. Brian Mulroney is 10 years younger than John Turner. And Brian Mulroney, when Mr. Turner first got elected, Brian Mulroney was um, an executive assistant to one of the conservative cabinet ministers in John Diefenbaker's government in the early 1960s. And Mr. Mulroney is sitting in the Parliament Hill dining room with a friend of his, and he looks across the room and he spots John Turner. And he says to his friend, hey, there's John Turner. Let's go over and meet him and shake hands with him. And Mr. Mulroney's friend says, well, what do we want to do that for? He's a liberal. We're Tories. And Brian Mulroney answers, because he's going to be prime minister someday and we want to meet him. Okay. So this is John Turner in his early 30s, not yet in cabinet, and yet the word was out there that this guy was going places. And even Brian Mulrooney, who was probably, you know, in his early 20s at the time, even he knew it at the time. 
what what were John Turner's priorities? Like, obviously, a very photogenic guy. He was clearly very bright, Rhodes Scholar, lawyer, as you mentioned. Uh, what really, though, in terms of policy, uh, drew him to the liberals and, and made him such a influential figure that someone like Pearson puts him in, frankly, really some of the more important cabinet portfolios that, that he serves in through his time as a cabinet minister. Uh, just in terms of the policies, what was he really pushing for and what was important to him? Well, a few things. And we have to remember that that uh, by the time he got into the Pearson cabinet, he got a very sort of rudimentary job. It was an entry-level job when he got in. He didn't hit the big time until Pierre Trudeau became prime minister in 1968. And then he got two of the most important jobs in cabinet, uh, the justice portfolio, which he surely as a lawyer would have definitely wanted because he had some legal reforms that he wanted to bring in. Uh, and of course, he was minister of finance as well. During times not unlike what we're going through right now, uh, high inflation, uh, a sense that the economy of the country was uh, somehow out of control and in trouble. And a lot of uh, people relied on him to sort of be the steady hand at the tiller to run the economy of the country, or at least manage it in, in such a way that, uh, that protected people from the difficulties of what they called stagflation. We had runaway inflation, but also um, a terrible recession as well. What did John Turner care about? His first big break in public life came when he became the parliamentary secretary to the Minister of Northern Affairs. And what did that do? That opened his eyes to the grandeur of Northern Canada. And he's he, certainly at the time, he was probably the only white man in Canada to have taken canoe trips uh, in the furthest northern regions of this country, places where only indigenous people would have been, because he fell in love with the far north and he fell in love with their people. And then as his career continued, he became consumer minister and he started to be a kind of a consumer watchdog. That was a new role. It did not exist before John Turner had it. And he wanted to make his mark on that. And then, of course, uh, probably the most significant developments in his time as justice minister, abortion was illegal in Canada before J John Turner was justice minister. Homosexuality was illegal in Canada before John Turner was justice minister. He passed a bill. He got passed a bill through uh, the majority liberal government parliament uh, after 1968, uh, which allowed for those things, which legalized those things. And, you know, even though he was a staunch Catholic and it would have been, you know, it would have been a hard lift for him personally as a Catholic to do those things. He was able to see a broader vision, which is, and Mr. Trudeau said the line perfectly, the state has no business in the bedrooms of the nation. And John Turner, through his relationships with the other side, through his knowledge of parliament, he got that done. So I think those were his priorities. And of course, good but wary relations with the United States would also have been high up his list. He always figured the Americans wanted our water and he wanted to make sure that we protected our water. Yeah. And uh, I think he's been proven right uh, on that one. Uh, and uh, one of those things, that, and certainly in my own research on relationships in the 1930s, that's one thing that has been constant is good but weary relationships with the United States. It uh, tends to be uh, a good way forward for uh, Canadian politicians. And uh, uh, so in all the things you're talking about, it, it's clear that these are really heavy issues. This is a lot of heavy lifting that he's doing while in cabinet. I believe Trudeau wrote in his memoir somewhere that uh, when John Turner decided to leave, in 1975, it was because he was just sick of Ottawa. It was so much work. He had put so much into it and it was time uh, to leave. Is that the same sense that you got in going through the papers and talking with family members is that when John Turner decided to leave, when he thought he was leaving for good, uh, that it was just he was just fatigued and uh, the, the parliamentary experience had 
kind of played out for him? You know, it's a hard question to answer because I've asked so many different people that question, and the answers are never completely all the same. Right. Uh, you're, you're sort of swimming in the right pool a bit with the notion that by the time he resigned, he'd been in public life for 13 years already. He'd had two of the most difficult portfolios. Um, you know, his kids, he had four kids at this point, And, you know, <laughs> you could see a time coming when four big university tuitions and his kids all went to university. Uh, two of the kids went to university in the States to here. But, you know, he was looking at some big outlays of uh, what educating these kids was going to cost. And and I think as well, he he fundamentally started to have a bit of a disagreement with uh, Pierre Trudeau on the issue of what to do about inflation. Uh, the conservatives of the day under Robert Stanfield uh, wanted wage and price controls. Mr. Trudeau ridiculed that position, saying, what do you expect me to do? Look at, look, you know, look at prices and say, zap, you're frozen. And then as time went on and inflation still rampaged out of control, Mr. Trudeau eventually did bring in wage and price controls, even though John Turner said he wouldn't do it. And that policy disagreement, as much as anything, I, I suspect, got Mr. Turner to step down. There was also the sense that, you know, John John Turner was clearly looking at the leadership of the party, had been for a long time, and Pierre Trudeau didn't look like he was going anywhere for a long time. And Mr. Turner had to ask himself, you know, am I really going to hang around in this guy's cabinet for another who knows what, two, three, four, five, six years before I get my shot at the leadership? That didn't seem all that appealing as well. So he left. When he left, was it in part because like, what was the relationship with Trudeau like? And when John Turner decides to leave, is anyone in the Trudeau government, uh, or at least sort of in that inner circle, Trudeau's inner circle, trying to talk him out of it, trying to talk him into staying? Well, here's the, again, it depends who you talk to. But um, the problem with their relationship is that for whatever reason, Mr. Turner had a need to feel needed by the prime minister. He wanted a closer personal relationship with the prime minister. And for whatever reason, Mr. Trudeau just never felt that he could give that. His personality was such that he couldn't give that to Mr. Turner. And and they didn't have the close personal relationship. I think probably Mr. Trudeau was incapable of it, uh, that Mr. Turner wanted. And, um, you know, Mr. Turner, I remember him joking on a number of occasions, the fact that he tried to establish a closer relationship with the prime minister. They'd go out to dinner together. Mr. Turner always picked up the check. He said, it's, it's a funny, and Mr. Turner, uh, Mr. Trudeau was a millionaire. Like he inherited millions from his father. And in spite of that, when the check came to the table, Mr. Trudeau always somehow found his, <laughs> found his way to the bathroom when the check came. And Mr. Turner always said the guy never picked up a single check in his life, uh, at least when they were having dinner together. But that, that tension was always there underlying their relationship. I think he wanted, they wanted it to be closer. At least Mr. Turner wanted it to be closer. He wanted to be sort of, you know, first among equals in closeness to the prime minister. And I got to tell you, when the, when the finance minister of the country, who was as respected as John Turner was, resigned, uh, I mean, holy smokes, it caused ripples, uh, starting with uh, the 1975 Ontario election, which took place a week after Mr. Turner's resignation. The liberals were in the lead, and it created such a consternation around the liberal party that it is thought to have contributed to the liberals' decline, and Bill Davis, the then conservative premier of Ontario, his second consecutive victory, because up until then, Mr. Davis was on his way to losing. So there were all sorts of, there's all sorts of fallout from that resignation. 
Yeah, and and for Turner himself personally, uh, so as he leaves federal politics, at least temporarily, uh, goes into uh, private work. Did he find what he was looking for? Because one of these things with with a figure like John Turner, he's so unique in that he leaves and comes back uh, into political life. So, what was that interlude? like for him because it's a it's a time whenever i've read about john turner or or thought about john turner it's cabinet minister and then let's just jump to 1984 but that that interim (laughs) period right it's uh, did he find everything he was looking for hoping for and how do we try to assess that period in thinking about him and his return to the federal stage. Well, he clearly didn't find everything he was looking for because he eventually (laughs) left private life and went back into public life and became prime minister. So, I mean, that was clearly on his list of things to do. Did he find some of what he was looking for at this time? He sure did. I mean, he made a great income, which was very important to him for reasons described earlier. Uh, Not only that, he was probably the most sought after corporate director in all of English Canada. I mean, he got on probably a dozen really big corporate boards So, uh, I mean, life was good. He and his wife and kids, they had a great life in Toronto. They lived in a fantastic house. They belonged to clubs, um, you know, traveled the world. They did, they did something that I suspect, you know, I was going to say no other family, but I don't know that for sure. So let me say few other families would have done, which is he prepared to take his family to the most Northern regions of Canada, which he would have known from his time as parliamentary secretary to the minister of Northern affairs. And he did all the navigating himself. He got the maps out and figured out the routes and organized the packs that were going to be taken. And for 10 days, he, his wife and kids and another sort of um, outdoorsman who would guide them, help guide them, they went canoeing the northernmost parts of this country. And it was sort of their summer vacation as a family. And it was, you know, they look back at it now. I mean, the kids have told me this. They look back at it now and, you know, they admit that sometimes they were... (laughs) like they were going over waterfalls and into rapids. And, you know, there were times when the the waves were so big, you'd be accused of child abuse today if you try to trip like that, because the (laughs) canoe almost tipped over numerous times and who knows what would have happened. I mean, if somebody got sick out there, there's no cell phones, there's no hospitals around. They're truly in the middle of nowhere. So, uh, you know, but this was all part of the, uh, the other life that they had created for themselves in those intervening years, which I guess were about 1975 to 84. So why does he come back in 1984 and what's the draw for him? Well, the draw is to make history because if he can win the liberal leadership and become prime minister and sort of, you know, give a new coat of paint to the Liberal Party of Canada, which of course at this time was extremely unpopular under the current prime minister's father, well, then you've done your country a service, your party a service, and I guess yourself a service as well. And he thought to himself, you know, when Mr. Trudeau took his walk in the snow, and then I guess in June 1984, they had the leadership convention. He thought to himself, I know the liberals have been in for almost 15 straight years. I know the liberals are very unpopular right now, but people were just beating down his door as the only guy that could save the silverware. Uh, they, You know, Jean Chrétien, who was also running in that leadership race and was his prime challenger, uh, the liberals have always had this unofficial policy of alternation. You know, if it's a, if, if a Francophone is the leader, then the next time it's an Anglophone. And if it's an Anglophone, the next time it's a Francophone. And there were just lots of people who said to Jean Chrétien, we just had a Francophone. It's an Anglophone's turn. And that means Turner. And it wasn't that they loved Turner, but they did see him as kind of the fair-haired knight-in-waiting as the guy who could come back, 
genuinely, truly changed the channel because Chrétien, of course, would have been associated with everything Trudeau did. Mm-hmm. They wanted somebody who was liberal, but not associated with the unpopularity of the Trudeau government who could continue the liberal dynasty and keep them in power. And, you know, they were right to a point and then it all fell apart. Yeah, it's one of these things, and it comes up in sports a lot, where this idea of you don't want to be the guy after the guy, you want to be yes. the guy after the guy who was after the guy, right? You exactly. That. That's who you want to be. And and so for someone like like Turner, that's that's what I've always wondered is, why go back to be the guy after the guy, especially knowing that in Canadian politics, it jumps back and forth between the two. And 15 years is a long time for a government. And if you look at the second half of the 20th century, up to that point, so much of it being liberal governments and with the financial situation, the economic situation, the way it was, now it's certainly easy to look back on it. And, you know, it's a year before I'm born, but, you know, you look at the circumstances, you think, of course, the conservatives were going to win the next election. Well, and and of course they did. And, you know, Mr. Turner underestimated a few things. Number one, why did he come back? He felt a strong sense of duty to party and country. And we shouldn't underestimate that. This is a man for whom duty, a duty to his party, to his country, to democracy in general, that's very big for him. And as more and more people came forward and said to him, John, you're the only guy who can do it. You're the only guy who can save this party. You know, he felt that duty and therefore he decided to, to go for it. Now, he had the misfortune of, as I say, liberals being in far too long. He had the misfortune of being in the, having been in the private sector for nearly a decade and being very, very rusty. He wasn't up on issues like he needed to be. He wasn't up on people who were part of the party like he needed to be. Uh, his French wasn't as good as it once had been back in the day. And I think overwhelmingly, the biggest thing he didn't anticipate was that he was going up against one of the truly exceptional campaigners in Canadian political history in Brian Mulroney. Uh, Brian Mulroney, I know a lot of people still don't like his prime ministership. They didn't like his policies, didn't like the way he governed. Uh, I'll just tell you the facts. He's the first conservative prime minister since Sir Johnny MacDonald to win back-to-back majority governments. So clearly he was doing something right by a big enough chunk of Canadians. And and uh, the Turner-Mulroney battles in 1984 and 1988 were epic. Yeah, yeah. and that that's one thing, too, that I think I'm, I'm curious about, too. Why did John Turner stay on in 1984? It could have been easy for him to say, all right, did the election. Obviously, it didn't work out. Uh, but he does stay on. He gets the, the 88 election as well as leader of the Liberal Party. Was there ever any thought to him or party leadership uh, those around him to say, maybe we need a total reset right now after 1984. No, there wasn't. And I'll tell you why. Um, number one, you have to remember what generation John Turner is from. He's really more connected to previous generations than the current generation in which he found himself back in politics. And by that, I mean, Lester Pearson, when he became the liberal leader, his first election was, well, it was, it was very similar to the Mulroney-Turner election in 1984. Diefenbaker totally smoked Pearson. It was the biggest at that time, the biggest majority government in Canadian history. But you know what? Pearson hung in there and by 1963 eventually became prime minister. And it was the same story Turner thought, maybe this can work for me. I got, I led the liberals to their worst showing ever in my first election, but maybe through hard work, diligence, I can turn this thing around. And by 1988, when you know the Mulroney government will certainly not be as popular as it was in '84, maybe I can lead my side to uh, you know, if not a majority government, at least a minority government. 
So there was no thinking to, to quitting after only one election. It was always assumed if he could, it was assumed it was going to be a two election project. That's a good point too. The the idea of single election leaders is a seems to be a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, yeah, one and out. You don't you, you don't yeah. get you don't get too many chances to lose nowadays. Back then, they yeah. were a little more forgiving. Yeah, and and so we get if we fast forward then to eighty eight. I've always read nineteen eighty eight, and it tends to be written about not so much as a federal election between the two parties, so much as it is a referendum on Brian Mulroney and NAFTA, and, and that's really how people write about it. I think most people think about that 1988 election. So within that context, how does John Turner fit into the story of the 1988 election? How do you try to uh, maybe overcome that dominant perspective that so many people have on that campaign? Well, we have to remember that the 88 election looked like the one Turner was going to win. And by that, I mean, you're quite right. He came out against the free trade agreement, not from a knee-jerk point of view, but he actually, when the agreement came out, he went on vacation, he read it from cover to cover, and his aides have told me that they know that because it, he brought his document back to Ottawa with him. It was all dog-eared. There were notes in the margins. There were posteds in there. I mean, he clearly read that thing, and he had a lot of questions about whether or not it was the best deal for Canada. He was never opposed to free trade per se, but he did not like that agreement specifically. And he was very offside from the rest of his caucus and party on things like the Meech Lake Constitutional Accord, which he favored, but most liberals opposed. But on free trade, he really spoke for the liberal faithful uh, who did not like the agreement, did not like Mulroney, and thought this was their way in. He had a great debate in the 1988 election. He bested Mulroney in that debate. And if the election campaign had ended 10 days earlier, he'd have won the election. But the conservatives were very clever in the way they ran that campaign. I remember Alan Gregg, the pollster for the conservatives, saying the line that John Turner has created a bridge of trust between himself and the Canadian people because of his position on free trade. We need to bomb that bridge. <laughs> and they spent the last couple of weeks of that campaign absolutely destroying Mr. Turner's reputation. And it worked. And it created seeds of doubt uh, among the electorate in Mr. Turner. And although he improved the liberal performance, I think they won more than twice as many seats the second time round as the first time, still wasn't enough. And Mr. Mulroney won a second consecutive majority. Mm -hmm. And uh, then it becomes clear, I, th I think, that John Turner is not going to get a third election. Or, or was it still in no, doubt no. at that point? Because he stays on for a couple of years, right? Officially, it's 1990 uh, that he is succeeded uh, by Jean Chrétien. So in, in John Turner's mind, after that 1988 election, uh, at what point does he, in his mind at least, turn the page and say, that's going to be it for me uh, on federal politics? I, I think everybody knew it was only a matter of time before he stepped down. But because of the Herculean performance he gave in the 88 election, people, even his worst enemies at that point, seemed content to let him choose the timing of his own departure. And he did. He, he reassembled the troops. He led the troops in Parliament for a little while. And then he announced his intention to leave. It actually wasn't, he didn't actually resign on the day he said he was resigning. He said, I am announcing my intention to leave the leadership because once you resign, you start a clock whereby the party must have a leadership vote within a certain period of time. And by saying, I have announced my intention to resign, the clock didn't actually start yet, which again, just gave him a little more flexibility to find the right time. And he eventually did stand down. And as you point out, they held a leadership convention in 1990. Uh, he gave a barn burner of a speech at the convention. 
But then uh, Jean Chrétien ended up winning uh, very easily at that convention, first ballot victory. And uh, well, Mr. Turner did a lot of the heavy lifting over two losses, trying to get the party back in shape. And the beneficiary of that was Jean Chrétien, who ended up winning three majorities in a row after that. Yeah. And I wonder too, like, because you mentioned that, that the, a lot of what Turner does in the 80s, that the Jean Chrétien benefits from it in the 1990s. And how much of John Turner's legacy is tied into being the prime minister versus him being a cabinet minister, uh, obviously with finance, and then the work he does as leader following the 1984 or even in the 1984 election. And that time, like, is he one of these individuals who 20 years from now, the legacy is short, second, potentially still second shortest run ever as prime minister. And does that necessarily overshadow some of the work that he did throughout the rest of his political career? Well, I'll tell you something that one of his former employees told me, which I thought was a very interesting line. And that is, how would you like to have been Prime Minister of Canada? And that might not have made the top 10 list of most important accomplishments in your life. And it's a great point because he was there for such a short period of time and his misjudgments were significant. He might have had a longer prime minister had he made better decisions at the time. But again, we have to remember he was very influenced by the fact that when Prime Minister, excuse me, when, um, yeah, Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau took over from Prime Minister Lester Pearson, there was Trudeau mania in the country. And Mr. Trudeau took advantage of that. He called a snap election right away. And he got a majority government, which Pearson never had. And that was certainly in the back of John Turner's mind, where he thought to himself, I've taken over a very unpopular party. I can bring it back in popularity, which he did. Their numbers went up significantly when Mr. Turner first took over. And I will, unfortunate word here, but it's the right word. I will exploit that newfound popularity for the liberals by calling a snap election and going to victory. Except the difference was there was no, that support was a mile wide and an inch deep. It just wasn't there. And the more the conservatives campaigned with, again, a guy as skillful as Brian Mulroney, the more they campaigned effectively against John Turner, the more it became obvious that... uh, you know, the liberal support just wasn't there at all. And as a result, uh, the prime ministership was very short. Will that be the most important thing on his resume? Absolutely not. I mean, there were other things he did as a cabinet minister and as a as a protector of democracy and champion of democracy that I think are far more important than the 79 days in which he was the prime minister of the country. But let's also remember, you know, we've only ever had 23 prime ministers in Canadian history, and he was one of them. So yeah. even though he was there for a short time, you have to give his man. You have to give the man his due. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, no question about it. And there, there's a lot there, certainly. And you know, for as much as you can talk about the trivia answer part of him being the prime minister, sort of in the Charles uh, Tupper uh, type of category, uh, he, there, there's a lot here. And the book really does a good job of laying it out. And uh, I think just Steve, there's uh, a final question for you. When you think of John Turner, uh, you know you, you mentioned some of the legacy things, but the thing that kind of stands out to me in, in going through this book and, and looking through his career is the passion that he seemed to have uh, for the country and the idea of service. And is this an individual who could be an example to all of us in, in a time where 
we are increasingly seemingly fractured and angry and people are yelling at each other. It, it seems to me that John Turner could be a good example of somebody who was able to navigate difficult waters, but to do so in a way that maintained a level of respect and humanity in the process. If that's your takeaway from this book, I love that. I think that's great. Uh, you and I are sitting here talking on the 19th of September. The queen has just had her funeral. It's the second anniversary of John Turner's death. Those two will therefore, in some respect, always be connected. And I'm glad they are because they were both creatures of duty. They both understood the notion of public service. And for Mr. Turner, that was a big deal. You know, there was a there was an expression, I don't know if they use it anymore, but there was an expression back in the day, oh yes, John Turner, he's a House of Commons man. That's what they called him, a House of Commons man, meaning he appreciated the importance of Parliament. He revered Parliament. He wanted the big debates of the country to happen in Parliament. He didn't want to minimize or ridicule or downplay Parliament. He thought it was the crucible of our democracy. And, you know, those are, I suppose, old-fashioned traits but uh, I wouldn't mind if they came back into fashion. I think it would be nice if, if people understood that, um, yeah, you do kind of have a bit of a duty to the country and you do have an obligation to champion democracy and to make sure that our democracy thrives. I'll quote him again. You know, it doesn't happen by accident. You've got to participate. And, and right up until the end, John Turner was going out and helping his friends campaign to win elections because he believed in participation. Yeah, uh, terrific. And uh, we've really only scratched the surface of what's in this book. So again, it's John Turner, an intimate biography of Canada's 17th prime minister. Steve, if people want to pick up a copy of the book uh, or follow along with all the things that you got going on, uh, what's the best way for them to keep up with everything? It's going to be in bookstores probably November. But if you go to the Sutherland House Press website, you can pre-order it now. And um, I hope all of your listeners will do so. Yes, and uh, we'll link to it uh, in the show notes below. So uh, again, Steve Bacon, thank you so much for joining me today. Great to be with you, Sean. Thanks so much for the interest. My thanks to Steve Pakin again, John Turner, an intimate biography of Canada's 17th prime minister. Check the show notes if you want a link to check out the book. Now, let's get right into this week's historical headline of the week. This week's historical headline of the week comes from Maclean's Magazine, September 17th, 1984, an article by Carol Gore titled, John Turner Maps His Future. This article was released in the aftermath of the September 1984 federal election in which the Conservative Party won a majority over John Turner's liberals. And in the article, Carol Gore discusses what John Turner is going to do next, how he is going to try to salvage the party after this significant loss, particularly given the reality that it was going through a significant change. Pierre Trudeau had been around for so long. He had been the face of the Liberal Party of Canada. And now with John Turner in that position, he had to assert himself as the leader. He had to do something to distinguish the Liberal Party from what it was to what it was going to be. A job that was made exceedingly difficult prior to the election and perhaps even more so given the election returns in the fall of 1984. And when you go through this article, you see the patterns that are repeated. The Conservative Party went through a similar process following the 2015 election when they had to shift from the Stephen Harper era into whatever 
was going to be next. And you can see it coming down the pipeline eventually when Justin Trudeau is no longer the liberal leader, what the Liberal Party of Canada is going to have to do. To a certain degree, you can also see it with the Green Party of Canada and the significant struggles that they have had since Elizabeth May left the leadership position. These transitions are not easy. They're extraordinarily challenging. And to both get the internal politics right, to get the team necessary to lead you to success, while also remaining unified in your appeal to the electorate, is a task that requires great skill. And as Carol Gore points out in this article, John Turner was well aware of the challenge that was facing him in September of 1984. If you're interested, we will link to the historical headline of the week down in the show notes from September 1984, John Turner maps his future. And that'll do it for this week, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe wherever it is you get your podcast. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review if you like what you're hearing. And we'll be back with you again next week for more What's Old is News.